Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to welcome you today to this forum lecture. I'm Sarah Einstone, one of the minor canons here. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Canon Richard Burridge, who is Dean of King's College London and Professor of Biblical Interpretation. We've actually known one another for over 10 years before I was ordained, so it's a personal pleasure for me as well. He's joining us today to talk about his book, Four Gospels, One Jesus, which Rowan Williams has called an indispensable classic. Professor Burridge is one of the foremost biblical scholars of our time, and this book offers great insights on how we can read and understand each gospel and the different portraits that they paint of Jesus. This book grew out of 10 years of academic research into the Gospels, but also reflects Richard's desire to bridge the gap between the prayer cell and the seminar debate. So for anyone who is intrigued or puzzled by the differences between the Gospels, this is a revelatory reading. On the eve of Lent, Richard will introduce the themes of this book on the occasion of its reissue as an SPCK classic. Richard is joint winner of the 2013 Ratzinger Prize for the Theology, and he is the first non-Catholic ever to win this prize. <laughs> Richard will speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have time for questions, and also an opportunity to buy his book at the end, if you would like to. Richard has given us each um, a document to refer to during the lecture, so I hope you will have one of those. So please, would you welcome Professor Richard Burridge. Thank you very much indeed, Sarah. Uh, as Sarah said, we've known each other for uh, a while. Uh, it was a joy and a privilege for me to have Sarah as part of our team at King's when she was exploring her vocation and to be able to encourage her uh, into the madness that is the Church of England, who, who were wise enough to accept her and, and ordain her. And we continue to hope and pray that all the offices of the Church of England, including our, right up to Archbishop, are open to her and others of her gender as soon as possible. <laughs> um, so it, it's a delight to, to be here. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk a little bit about this book. Uh, in one ways, it would also be nice if Mark Oakley had been able to make it because when I first arrived as Dean of Kings in the middle of the last century, um, Canon Oakley was then newly ordained curate at St John's uh, by next door to where he had the Lord's Cricket Ground as half of his parish. And he chose the first edition of this book for a, a Lent course in his parish then and had me in to talk to his, to his congregation. So. I feel the relationship between this book, Mark, and Sarah, and, and I go back uh, quite some way. Now, as Sarah said, it begins really with my doctoral work, What Are the Gospels?, um, now, which was then republished uh, 10 years or so ago by Erdman's, and there are a couple of copies of that available for sale afterwards as well. Um, as I often say to my students, not, it's not that reading my books is essential to pass the course, but buying my books is essential. <laughs> Um, what, I, I'm a classics teacher originally, um, read classics at Oxford and went, went teaching of classics. And then when I was doing my ordination training, I was allowed and encouraged to do a PhD as part of that to look at this basic question of what kind of document are the Gospels. 
Um, uh, I've really built my academic career on what that famous theologian Peter Cook called the art of the bleeding obvious. Um, but it, it, it may seem odd, but the question of what the Gospels actually are was hotly disputed uh, in New Testament scholarship for most of the 20th century. And it was eventually then published by Cambridge in 1992, uh, when I was the sole voice arguing that the Gospels were a form of Greco-Roman biography. And then by 10 years later, the new uh, edition that came out that you can see here on the slide um, was by that stage had become more or less the accepted view. And what I was doing was to try to argue for the Gospels as a form of ancient biography. The problem before that had been that people looked at modern biography and looked at the Gospels, and the Gospels looked nothing like modern biography. But then other ancient biographies also look nothing like modern biography. The category mistake that had been made by Rudolf Bultmann and German uh, Protestant scholarship for most of the 20th century was to compare the Gospels as ancient texts with modern texts, and that was clearly uh, a, a mistake. Um, and so by looking at a whole range of features, uh, I've been involved in, in um, trying to argue that the Gospels have that focus upon Jesus that is shared by the focus upon the, the subjects. And also, as uh, uh, Sarah kindly referred to, I've just recently come back from meeting this gentleman in Rome uh, after I've been awarded the Ratzinger Prize for this particular work. Um, the previous Pope, Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, had written a large biography of Jesus, uh, partly before he became Pope and then the other volumes uh, thereafter, and um, drawing upon the same kind of thing that I was arguing for in terms of the Gospels as a kind of biography. So we had a major conference in Rome in October where I was talking about this work and had the privilege to spend a few days staying in the same bed and breakfast guest house where Pope Francis still lives. He is an extraordinary man. He refused to go into the papal apartments and says if the, if the guest house was good enough for me when I arrived here as just a mere cardinal, it's still good enough for me now. Um, so I was, I, it was great to be able to receive that prize from Pope Francis, but the, important, the, the reason why this is up to date is obviously I'm not really just trying to show off. Um, you will see that I'm giving him a copy of the book we're talking about. <laughs> so if it's good enough for Pope Francis, it's good enough for you. Um, so part of the... After I'd spent 10 or 15 years investigating Greco-Roman biography, people said, OK, Richard, we give up. You've got lots of charts, lots of data. We agree the Gospels are a form of ancient biography. Yawn, yawn, so what? I mean, it's very impressive, but, you know, really, what's the point? Does it actually make any difference to how uh, ordinary Christians read the Gospels? And I thought, that's a really important question that a theologian needs to be asked. Uh, it's all very well sitting away in the library and coming up with all these wonderful things, but if it doesn't actually fly here on the ground of ordinary churches, if St Paul's is a kind of ordinary church, uh, then, then what's the point? And, and so I found myself asking, okay, what difference does it make to how we read the Gospels, if I'm right, the Gospels are a form of biography? So I want to show you, uh, as the book begins, with four little pictures. Here is Winston Churchill at the Casablanca Conference. He's sitting with President Roosevelt. Uh, you've got lots of men in uniform behind him. Uh, it's a very severe, very stark photograph. And you can see that uh, Churchill 
is uh, holding his cigar, so we, 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 know, we know it's him, and, uh, you know, very sombre. That's very different from this picture. Tea time at Chartwell, August 1927, uh, painted by Churchill himself. It's we have a self-portrait of himself with his family at tea. We know it's Churchill, he's got his cigar. But the context is very different. And if you go to Chartwell today, you'll see that the room is set up exactly as it is in that painting. Um, and it's a painting of a family having tea. If you look at this picture, which uh, had originally in the, in, the, in the sort of British publication of it, Churchill was popular wherever he went, especially with the troops. Uh, we see he's wearing a uniform. He, we know it's Churchill. He's got the cigar. Um, but very different. The men are all smiling. This is just after the invasion of southern Italy. Victory will soon be, be at home. And he's clearly very popular with the troops. August 1946, the Villa Choisy in Switzerland. Churchill has lost, won the war and lost the election. Uh, so he's in opposition, he's on holiday in Switzerland uh, painting. And the point of view of the camera over his shoulder, and now he's wearing obviously a painter's smock and a trilby, and he's relaxing. We know it's Churchill, he's got the cigar and all of that. So we have four very different pictures of Winston Churchill. And what we do not do, if we want to understand him, is to overlay them one on top of another. In those prehistoric days before PowerPoint, I would do this on a thing called an overhead projector and would then put all the acetates one on top of another, and it was a mess. Um, I must get some clever student to show me how I can do it on PowerPoint. But the point is, we look at each of the pictures separately, and we appreciate Churchill the family man, Churchill the painter, Churchill the statesman, Churchill the war hero. But there's still four pictures, one Churchill. And traditionally, of course, the uh, Gospels are marked by these four images. And when I looked at how do I do my biographical approach to the Gospels, how do we do a Christological story? How do we do the Gospels as a form of biography of Jesus that takes those four portraits seriously. If you, just for a moment, look at the handout that I gave you, I, I get a quick introduction there about texts and windows and mirrors, in which I was trying to suggest that in traditional literary theory, uh, of any kind of the communication theory, there is a, a transmitter, a receiver, and that which is transmitted. I mean, I live close to Alexandra Palace, there's the, there's the big... Uh, transmitter for the BBC going there and so on. If I want to receive the signals, I have to have a, the same receiver. I can't get the television signal on my radio. Some would say the pictures are better on the radio, but you, you get the idea. And, and that, that's really important. If I want to read the Gospels, I've got to use the right radio. I've got to tune to the right frequency. I've got to look at the way in which they were broadcast, the way in which they were transmitted and interpret them in the same kind of way. And the problem with New Testament studies uh, in the middle of the 20th century was that they were trying to get the pictures on the radio, if you like, by mixing up what kind of thing the Gospels actually were. And this triangle of images gives us also the idea of a window or a mirror or a stained glass. And at the risk of grave oversimplification, those of you who've done any biblical studies will know that most of the 20th century was taken up with this thing called the quest for the historical Jesus. 
And the important thing there was that the Gospels were a kind of window through which we would look onto the historical Jesus or the early church, because the window's got 2,000 years of uh, rubbish and wind and rain and bird mess and everything else, and we have to try to clean the windows to, to be able to look through to the other side. Uh, and if necessary, we'll take the windows apart to do that. And you know, some people found that kind of biblical studies quite destructive. On the other hand, um, if you've been to these sort of swanky cafes that you have around St. Paul's, um, and you go in, it's very, very busy, and you see a, a table over in the far corner to the right, and you head to it, and halfway you get a terrible shock because you walk into a mirrored wall. And the, the cafe's only half the size of what you thought it was, uh, and the table that you thought was over there is actually a reflection of a table that was over in the far left corner, and somebody's just gone and stolen it. And what happened then was you confused a reflection in the mirrored wall for something that you thought was the other side of it. And much of our reading of the biblical text or of any text is actually, we think we're looking through the text like a mirror, but actually what we're doing is bouncing our own prejudices, our own ideas, reflecting them back to us. Now, with the added, agreement, uh, added uh, ingredient that God agrees with me. So I, I can go and found a, a TV evangelist station and say that everybody else is going to hell and all, and all of that. And so is the, are the Gospels a form of window or are they a form of mirror? Do they give us access through to Jesus on the other side or are they just something in which we, we catch our own views? And so that's why on the sheet I said that Gospels is a form of ancient biography, what kind of glass... I was trying to decide, are they a window, are they a mirror? Are they an ancient biography? Are they legend? Are they myth? Are they history? Are they just church dogma and so on? And as it says on the sheet, and obviously here as well, I found myself playing <coughs> with the four Gospels, the four symbols of the Gospels, that you'll find the four faces of the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1, the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the human face. And this is the front cover of the original SBCK edition that Mark Oakley used in his, in his local parish. Uh, obviously, un, small, young, and unknown author, so no expense was spared on the quality of the drawings, as you can see. Um, but these images get applied quite quickly to the gospel writers. If you buy a commentary on John's Gospel, I guarantee there will be an eagle somewhere on the jacket. Um, uh, it actually comes from Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon in the middle of the second century in his great book Against the Heresies, where he talks about these four images. Um, this is the American edition, uh, slightly more plush, and you can see we've illustrated it with the four pictures from the Lindisfarne Gospels. And... Uh, what I was doing was to look at research into the use of these images in Celtic art, because this is a period, of course, which was very much a visual culture. Many people didn't read, but if they picked up a scroll and it had a beautiful eagle on it, they knew it was going to be the Gospel of St. John. What's interesting here in these images, and we'll see them in a bit more detail in a moment, is that the symbol is hovering above the evangelist, as though inspiring the evangelist, the, the lion hovering above Mark, the ox hovering above Luke, and so on. And what Irenaeus actually says is that these are images of the disposition of the Son of God. 
And so I thought, hang on, that might be the way of answering that question. Okay, Richard, you've convinced us the Gospels are a form of biography, but so what? What difference would it make if I actually looked at, instead of church or the war hero, church or the painter, if I actually looked at Jesus the lion, Jesus the ox, in the Gospels according to Mark, according to Luke. This is the way in which they are as it were, showing their picture. And, and so the original edition came out from SPCK and this side of the pond and Erdman's in America in 1994, a long time ago now. So here we are. This is the Lindisfarne Gospels portrait of Mark. You can see he's busily writing away. And we have the Imago Leonis, the image of the lion, hovering above him. Uh, so the lion is not Mark. Uh, the lion is clutching in the four paws uh, a copy of the book, and it is as though the lion is inspiring Mark as he writes. And so, you know, as I say, just a bit of fun, having a play. What happens if we interpret Jesus in Mark's gospel as though he were a lion, roaring and rushing about? And I've tried to give you some of this data. It's all there you know, on, on your sheet as we're going through. Mark's gospel begins, of course, with no... A, no uh, angels, uh, no enunciations, no shepherds, no kings, or however many they are, or whatever. It just says that John the baptizer comes out of the wilderness, Jesus comes to him, and verse 9 of chapter 1, and immediately they went into the water, and immediately he came out. And actually, by the end of chapter 1, Mark has used the phrase, and immediately, no less than 10 times. I mean, we, we just have him in like bite-sized chunks in our services, but if you read the whole of Mark chapter 1, I'm, I'm breathless by, by the sheer pace. And in fact, he uses the phrase, and immediately 40 times in the whole of his gospel. The phrase, and immediately, or the word immediately, comes in the rest of the New Testament in Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Paul, all the other epistles and Revelation, about 40 times for the rest of the New Testament. Mark, the smallest gospel, uses it the same time, the same number of times as all the other gospels. It's a gospel of enormous pace and energy. And then he also has 151 uses of the historic present. And you're going to say to me, now what's all that about? Now you know how it is when you're on the tube or on the bus and there's a couple of old ladies in front of you and they're talking about the war. And she says, uh, now, uh, and you're not sure which war actually for that matter. Um, so I says to her and she says to me, and it's all being done in the present tense and it's incredibly vivid, even though you're listening to a reminiscence that may be 50 or even 100 years ago. The describing of it in the present makes it vivid. And Mark does this in the Greek 150 times in his gospel about past events, but describing it constantly in the present. Now, when we come to translate into English, um, you know, Mark scores a gamma minus for his Greek grammar. Um, and tut, 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 you really, really poor style, Mark. So actually, our English translators helpfully put them all into past tenses for us. And you miss this incredible energy and vividness and pace that Mark is telling it like the ladies on the bus. So Jesus says to him and he says to Jesus and, you know, and we're, we're, we're rushing on. 
And I like to think of Mark's Gospel a bit like a symphony in three movements. The first movement always is the fast movement, lots of scurrying violins, rushing around, roaring, everything happening immediately. And we see the way in which the lion of St. Mark is roaring, rushing, jumping here, jumping there, roaring, not being understood, and rising opposition. In chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, I've given you the reference there on the sheet, um, his parents, you know, his mother and his brothers and sisters come to him because they think he's a sandwich or two short of a picnic um, and uh, say he's out of his mind and, and the authorities uh, say that he's possessed by the devil and we see this rising opposition. Nobody understands him, uh, nobody accepts him uh, and there's this extraordinary conflict that, that begins to emerge through this first Section And even the disciples really don't understand what's happening. And you think, hang on, we are talking about the first pope uh, and the first bishops, you know, and Jesus, keeps, keep, Jesus gets more and more frustrated with them. Oh, you have no, where is your faith? People have no faith. Well, I mean, you, Mark, you don't say that about the first pope and the first bishops, but, but Mark does. And then we come to the slow movement, the interlude of chapters 8 to 10. in which we have that story of Caesarea Philippi where he says to the disciples, well, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And sort of suddenly we get this idea of of who Jesus' identity is. But then, of course, when Jesus says, yeah, and I'm going to go and get crucified, and Peter said, no, Christs don't get crucified, and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, We're playing with these images. Jesus is... Uh, the Messiah who's going to Jerusalem, but not to kill the Romans, not to kick them out, but to suffer and die. He's the wonder worker who heals everybody else but doesn't heal himself. He's the Son of God who is also uh, the Son of Man, and so on. And in traditional biblical scholarship of the 20th century, Rudolf Bultmann and co. would say, well, of course, actually what happened was Mark had a Son of God source and a Son of Man source, and he had a uh, a suffering Messiah source, and he, he had an exalted Son of Man. And, and Mark's just sort of put all these things together, and he hasn't realised that they don't really fit very well. But of course, being clever 20th century theologians, we can spot this. And I want to turn around and say, actually, I think Mark's an extraordinary literary and creative artist who knows full well that these things are intention. And that's the whole point about, about it, you know, that there is this, this uh, mixture of what is going on in his portrait. And so Jesus is this enigmatic wonder worker, eschatological prophet, Messiah, son of God, son of man. And then we come to the third movement, the steady march, as we go to Jerusalem, to the temple, the lion comes to his lair and finds it's a den of thieves. And it's barren and it produces no fruit. And if you know, remember in Mark, there's that story of Jesus going to the fig tree and, the, and it produces no fruit. And he says, well, may you be cursed. And then the next time they see it, the fig tree is withered. Well, that's on the way to the temple and on the way back. And then there's the story of the, the, the tenants of a vineyard who produce no grapes. And the, the owner keeps sending servants to try and get the rent and in the end he sends, he sends his son and they kill the son. 
And you think, well, what are all these things put together? And if you think Mark is just a, a random collector of stories, there's no connection. If you see him as a creative artist, remember that the fig tree and the vineyard are images of Israel throughout the prophets and throughout the Hebrew scriptures. The fig tree produces no fruit. The vineyard produces no fruit. The temple produces no fruit. And there's the terrible warning that then leads into Mark chapter 13 of the, the prophecy of the destruction of the temple as a place that produces no fruit uh, in, in the Markan apocalypse. And the roaring, rushing lion falls silent. Jesus becomes passive. He suffers and dies in Mark with only one word from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the question is not answered. And he dies a failure. And the, uh, just at that moment, somebody at the foot of the cross, not a religious leader, not even Jewish, but a Roman soldier, mutters under his breath, truly this was the Son of God. And that's the first time in Mark's Gospel that a human being has described Jesus as the Son of God. Up until that point, it's only been the demons or the heavenly voice. And of course, there's the wonderful story with John Wayne in the greatest story ever being told when he was the centurion and the director said to him, John, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. And the guy says, look, could you say it with a bit more awe? So John Wayne said, awe, truly this man was the Son of God. <laughs> and then, of course, we go into the resurrection where the ending is full of enigma and fear and awe. The women go to the tomb and, and there's an empty tomb and there's an absent Jesus and there's a figure in white. And all the way through the gospel, people have been told not to say anything. And the figure in white says, look, he's going ahead of you to Galilee and go and tell people. And the women go out and say nothing to anybody because they were afraid. And that's how it ends. Is he safe? Said Lucy. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. And there is something about C.S. Lewis's portrayal of Aslan, about Mark's portrait of Jesus as the roaring, rushing, bounding, misunderstood lion who suffers and dies as he does his Aslan, of course, shade of his mane uh, on, on the stone table. And yet, that becomes the pivot. Now, Matthew is uh, traditionally seen as the human face. And I, I, when I wrote uh, Four Gospels, One Jesus, my, my daughters, Rebecca and Sarah, to whom the book is dedicated, um, were at that really awkward stage, you know, why daddy? don't understand why, what, where, when. And, and I, I like to think of Matthew as the sort of toddler of the gospel writers, really. Um, he, he, he takes the dark and riddling picture of Mark and asks those sorts of questions. Where, when, why, what's going on? He's the teacher of Israel. And so in this wonderful picture from the Lindisfarne Gospels, you've got the human face, the angel hovering over Matthew as he writes, and there's a guy with a beard and a book 
sticking round, looking round the, 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 the picture, the, the curtain there. I and mean, obviously there's great debate uh, among uh, scholars of, of Celtic art as to who, it, who that could possibly be. Well, clearly, because he's got a beard in the book, it has to be Moses, apparently, is the answer. Uh, I thought a lot of people had beards and books, but never mind. I think that's extremely likely because Matthew was probably written in the mid-80s after the destruction of the temple, after the Holocaust. And I use that word deliberately of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the Jews being kicked out of Jerusalem. And when they're looking for where is God? Where are we in our desolation? Possibly in, among the, the dispersed Jews in Antioch. And the opening chapters are full of this Jewish background. Mark just begins with John the Baptist. Matthew, if you remember, begins with the Biblos Genesios Jesu Christo, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, which gets translated in English as the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But the word is Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And Abraham begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And Jesus' lineage is traced back through a David and Abraham in 40, three lots of 14 generations, from, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. And numbers are a relatively recent invention, as you're probably aware. And when, by the way, when, when I use the word recent, remember I'm an Oxford classicist, and the distinction of ancient and modern history is when the legions left in 410. So recent means 7th, 8th century. Uh, in the ancient world, they used letters for numbers. You know, A was one, B was two, and so on. And if you add up the, letter, the, num the numerical score of David, it's 14. And there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Jesus is David times three. And uh, it all appears, it's seen from the man's point of view, uh, with, with, with and Joseph, and Jesus goes to give his great teaching on a mountain, just like Moses giving the law on a mountain. And everything important on Matthew's Gospel takes place on mountains. So Jesus is the new David, the new Solomon, the new Moses, the new lawgiver, the new teacher of Israel. And he fulfills the law and the prophets in a way that uh, sums up all that Moses was about. And we have these five great blocks of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7, uh, the mission discourse of the church in chapter 10, the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13, the life of the church in chapter 18, and the discussion about the end of time and all of that with the sheep and goats at the end. Five discourses, and of course we have the five books of Moses. And interestingly, the Sermon on the Mount is about 105 verses, and the Eschatological Discourse is about 110 verses. We have two long ones, the teaching for the present and the teaching for the future, as, the, as book one and book five. Chapter 10 and chapter 18 are both around about 33 or 34 verses. The mission of the church, the life of the church. And at the centre... The medium-sized discourse, around about 50 or 60 verses, are the parables of the kingdom. And the power of the kingdom is at the centre. Matthew has constructed this gospel. with this, These evangelists are not just stringing things together like beads on, on, on a string. This is very carefully done. And in chapter 10, Jesus, and only in Matthew it says this, tells 
the disciples not to go to the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But as the lost sheep do not want to hear, and as the Syrophoenician woman says, look, even the dogs can have the scraps the children don't want, so we begin to move towards a new community. And Matthew is the only person to use the word ecclesia, church, and says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, chapter 16. And then in chapter 18, we have the account of the life of the church, followed in the last discourse by the woes to the leaders of Israel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In his account of the Passion, he follows Mark, but in good John Wayne fashion, it's much more awesome. Uh, there are all these additions about uh, Pilate's wife having a dream and that Jesus is innocent. Pilate washing his hands uh, of Jesus. Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And when we have the cry of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's impossible for Matthew that God could have forsaken his Messiah. And that cry is not allowed to go unanswered. For Mark, in the middle of the destruction of Jerusalem, that it went unanswered because that's where God was in the desolation. But for Matthew, 20 years later, it is answered by an earthquake, by wind, by fire, by the rocks opening, exactly the kind of things that happen when God turns up in the Old Testament. And the centurion and the soldiers and everybody say, truly, this is the Son of God. And the same thing happens in the resurrection, a couple more earthquakes, the men are, the soldiers are asleep, and they go where? To a high mountain, and the one who is described as Emmanuel, God with us at the start, says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Israel divides between those who believe and those who don't. Now Luke, traditionally seen as the ox, some people think he's a bit of a plodder among the evangelists, but actually I would rather see the ox as the beast of burden in the ancient world. Before the Industrial Revolution, the ox was the most powerful engine that the human race had. It was the ox that ploughed your fields, drew your water, and so on. And so it's a universal bearer of burdens. Mark begins with the baptism. Matthew begins with Joseph. Luke begins with women. The angel appearing to Mary, Mary's song, the story of Elizabeth, the, 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 the barren person who then ha has the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, and among the lowly poor, shepherds are the ones, not, not wise men, not powerful kings, shepherds who come to the infant. And his portrayal of the disciples is, includes, of course, women disciples in chapter 8, the 70 or the 72 in chapter 10. And the crowds are much more enthusiastic all the way through this gospel as Jesus uh, is, is, is going out. Now, the disciples are also better portrayed. I mean, I've already said that Mark shouldn't have talked about the first pope and the bishops as being people with no faith. Matthew and Luke are a bit embarrassed about that. So in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, O ye of little faith. Luke's gospel, the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. So we have this slightly better portrayal of the disciples. The Pharisees, instead of being the, the, the opponents of Jesus, as they are in, in Matthew, are his dialogue partners. 
they invite him regularly for dinner and, and say, Rabbi, you know, they have good arguments, and he still says all the hard things, but it's rather different when it's done you know, after dinner. Um, the real opposition comes from the powerful religious leaders in Jerusalem in charge of the temple and the sacrifices and cooperating with the Romans, and they know what to do with an ox that won't stay in its place. You sacrifice it. And so throughout, Jesus is concerned for the poor, the lost, the unacceptable outcasts, women, Gentiles, and so on. And he's enabled to do that because he's the person of prayer, the one who, is above all, is filled with the Holy Spirit and can give the Spirit to others. And so when we come to the Passion, we do not have the verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He begins by speaking to the women who were concerned for him on the way to the cross and says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves because when the Romans come, the women and the children are the ones that are going to suffer most. And when he's being nailed to the cross, he prays forgiveness for the, the brother from the trade union, the, other, the carpenter who is nailing the carpenter to a piece of wood and uh, working for the Romans. And only in Luke do we have the penitent thief on the next door cross who, and to whom he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He is the person who spent his life opening the kingdom to women, to the poor, to the oppressed, and he dies in exactly the same way. And then afterwards in the resurrection, he goes with his friends on the walk to Emmaus, dines with his friends, and it ends not on a mountain as in Matthew, but as it began. It began in the temple, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it ends in the temple with great joy, blessing God. And then lastly, John. Did you notice that the others were all busily writing away? And here's John being inspired by the eagle. He's the classroom swat. He's finished his gospel early. Uh, and the image of the eagle in the Old Testament, the high-flying, all-seeing eagle the, the, who comes from the great height and descends can be an image of God's mercy on, a, on an eagle's wings, can be an image of God's judgment coming down like an eagle upon the flock. And when I was writing this for SBCK in the early 90s, they said, look, we, we, we like all the lion stuff. We like all Aslan and C.S. Lewis and Narnia. But throughout John's Gospel, I kept referring to the Guajir, the wind lord, and the eagles in, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And they said, look, Richard, you know, you've spent too much time listening to Led Zeppelin and Heavy Rock. And, and you know, in 10 years' time, nobody's going to be even be reading Tolkien anymore. Well, <laughs> when we did this version, I had to go back and change all those allusions to the wonderfully computer-generated eagles in, 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 in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, which are just extraordinary images of, of, of John. Possibly written in the 90s, possibly a connection with the Apostle John, but... You know, where do the Gospels start? Mark starts, we, where did Jesus come from? Mark says, well, we have to start with John the Baptist and the baptism. And Matthew says, no, no, let's, um, let, let, let's talk about his birth. And, and Luke says, no, I think we need the forerunner. And John is sitting there like this and then plays the ace of trumps. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word came from God. If you want to know who Jesus is, you don't look at his human origins. He comes from God. And throughout, he is center stage. Uh, and if you've looked at John's Gospel, you'll know that he has a mixture of stories and, and discourse. 
narrative and speeches. So we get the feeding of the 5,000 followed by the discussion about the bread of life, or we get the feeling of the man born blind preceded by the I am the light of the world. And again, traditionally, you would say, Bultmann says, well, you know, he had a sign source and he had a saying source and he's put them together. I just think these guys are incredible literary artists who are explaining what Jesus does by what Jesus says or what Jesus says by what Jesus does. The opposition throughout comes from what John calls the Jews. And that's really difficult for us today because we have to remember that when John writes that, he is a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, the disciples are all Jews. He means the Jewish leaders. And throughout the first half, but of course it can sound very anti-Semitic, so we must be extremely careful about that. But if the eagle is a symbol of judgment for the Jews that are rejecting, he's also the symbol of care as the eagle from God gathers his disciples under his wings, feeds them at the Last Supper, and explains them what's going to be happening. And throughout the Passion, we don't have the quiet, uh, passive uh, image that we have in Mark or the, the, what we have in Matthew uh, and Luke. Jesus is in control right from the start. He's telling Pilate what's going on. He says he's thirsty because to fulfill scripture. He's caring about who's going to look after his mother. And when he dies, it's not with a cry of abandonment, but it is accomplished. It is fulfilled. And when he appears in the resurrection, the eagle is risen with healing in its wings. And it confronts Mary in her grief, Thomas in his doubt, and Peter in his recrimination about having betrayed him. And says three times, one for each denial, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I have a job for you to do. Go feed my sheep. So, four portraits of the one Jesus. Um, what I was arguing in the last part of the book is about how do we handle diversity and plurality within the canon. We, God is slightly better than Henry Ford. You know, you can have whatever colour you like as long as it's black. Um, we have a rainbow within the canon. We have four different pictures. Uh, and the whole ancient idea of truth is not bound up with our modern ideas of facticity. It's, a, it's about what does it mean to get truly behind it. And so I, I like talking about the relationship between his story and history. And, and the book was used a lot for lay training in the States and then the UK. And this is the, 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 the second edition that came out in around about 2004-05. And then, uh, as Sarah referred to, there's this new SBCK classic edition with uh, Rowan Williams and Desmond Tutu and various other people on the back cover saying all sorts of nice things about it. Um, and what I was trying to do still is to talk about these four accounts of Jesus' deeds and words and not just putting it into one. So I've raised a number of questions you might want to explore with one another. I'm raising questions, they're on the sheet, the questions about unity and diversity. Traditionally, we use one gospel as a kind of master narrative. That was what Marcion did. Or there's the habit that Tatian had in the early church of mixing the four Gospels together. That thing that you often find in the back of Bibles called the harmony of the four Gospels. Anything less harmonious is hard to imagine. We've got four different pictures. Let's use them in our liturgy, in our lectionary, the revised common lectionary. Let's just look at one Gospel in through each year. I did argue for a four-year cycle, but never mind. So, 
Diversity in history, what does it mean to talk about this in terms of his story and the relationship to history and the relationship of truth and interpretation? And then we have this thing called the canon. We have plurality. We have four portraits of Jesus, but four, not 44. Are all portraits equally valid? Uh, can we talk about Christology a la carte for a consumer society? Uh, are there any limits? What about the Nazi Aryan Jesus or, or the Jesus from, that Mrs. Thatcher expanded to the General, Secretary, uh, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland from the parable of the Good Samaritan and Samaritan paid for the care, therefore we had to have um, paid insu medical insurance or whatever. Uh, she really did say that. Um, where, are the, where are the limits? How do the Gospels work as what Robert Morgan in a very important article in Interpretation described as a stimulus and a control for our images of Jesus today? And lastly, biography, faith and worship. I began with this triangle of author, text, reader, storyteller, story, audience, preacher, message and congregation. So the answer to those three questions in the more traditional scholarly view was that the Gospels are written by a committee. You know, lots and lots of people involved. Well, I sit on a lot of Church of England committees and they don't write anything half as interesting as the Gospels. <laughs> I, I wish they did. And they were written for communities, the Matthean community, the Johannine community, about concepts, the Kingdom of God. Biography is very simple. The answer to the question, well, what differences does this work make, is that they're they are stories about Jesus, written by people, for people, about people, and particularly about one person, God made flesh, in the, in, in the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. And we need to read and to hear that whole story. Thank you very much for an incredibly rich account. I saw quite a few people taking notes, which should mean that we have questions uh, that you might want to raise. Would anybody like to make the first yes? Thank you for those questions. I'll, I'll summarise them as I, as I go along because each one is worthy of a PhD. Um, <laughs> but what I think they have between them is, is, is what kind of book are we talking about and who are these people? So. Uh, firstly, you're quite right, those are terribly English names. Um, um, I mean, actually, if you go back, uh, they're, they're, they're English versions of the Latin version of the Greek version, in some cases of the Hebrew. So, John is Johannan, which means God is gracious. Uh, Lucas and, and Marcus are, are, are Greek or Roman names. Uh, Matthew is, again, a, a, a very traditional Jewish name. Um, what, what's important about those names is, of course, it doesn't say the gospel by. It says the gospel according to. There is one gospel, there are four versions of it according to the teachings of uh, these people who are out. And they're identified from the middle of the second century as coming from, from, from those sources. Um, which is, picks up, again, some of the stories that you were referring to about whether Mark was... Peter's scribe and, and jotting these, these notes down uh, and so on. And the reference to the Jesus Seminar and the five Gospels um, is, of course, that the, the Jesus Seminar is a, 
a group of folk, mainly in America, though some of them are English, some of them are South African, a lot of them are good friends of mine, and I've, I've worked with them extensively as well. And, and they include the Gospel of Thomas in that. Um, now, the problem with the Gospel of Thomas is it's just a collection of sayings. There is no narrative. It's just 114 things Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. Uh, some of them are very like the things we have in the canonical Gospels, uh, others are not. And a lot depends, I mean, behind all of those questions is how did these books come into being? And the, the Jesus Seminar think Thomas is early, and they think the canonical Gospels are impositions by the church on it. Um, that's the predominant position of the, of the Jesus Seminar. Here in Britain and Europe, most of us think uh, Thomas is late and that Thomas is dependent upon the synoptics, and that's where he's got it from. And particularly, um, I mean, though the reference to Mary, I mean, the idea in Thomas that Mary's sort of like an honorary man because she's so close to the kingdom and she'll become male in order to be able to be saved doesn't sound to me like the Jesus who, who accepted women among his followers. So I, I don't accept the presupposition of the Jesus Seminar that Thomas is early. Uh, and increasingly, Mark Goodacre's book from Duke University, Simon Gathercole from Cambridge, is arguing increasingly for the lateness of, of Thomas. And, and, and so um, I'm, I'm less convinced about the idea that Mark or whoever are writing shorthand of Peter's actual teaching, though I think there may well be a Petrine tradition lying behind it. But as I was trying to portray for each of them, they tell their story in a way that has this one focus, and that's particularly why I'm, much as I love the Nativity story, and much as I love Good Friday and the Seven Words from the Cross, I think those are mismatch, where you take bits from the different Gospels and mix them all up. And I tried to show how the Cross sums up each of the stories before Gospels. And when we put the seven words together on Good Friday and we hear God having forsaken Jesus one minute and Jesus caring about the, the penitent thief another and saying things are accomplished another, they're in, at best, a creative tension. Uh, equally, uh, when we do a traditional carol service and we, 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 we have uh, Luke's women and, and poor shepherds and Matthew's powerful going to Herod and the Magi and all topped off with... St. John expands the mystery of the Incarnation, read by the Dean. Um, uh, it, it, I went to a cathedral school where the Dean literally did read it out, read by the Dean. Um, I, I would much rather say, what, what's going on here? And, and Luke is, the, the, it is all about how the child prefigures the adult. Aaron knew that Elvis was going to be king of rock and roll. He'd come into my ice cream store and he would sing to us. You know. uh, people will always have stories about the child. So for Luke's picture of Jesus, he spends his time with women, the poor, and so on. So he sets his birth in that context. For, for Matthew, it's all about wisdom and the law. So he sets it in the context of Gentiles coming to the king of Israel wanting the wisdom and the king of Israel not understanding and wanting to kill all the little boys and so on. And that prefigures what's going to happen. And, and John sets it in the context of the, the great cosmic sphere. And I, I would rather listen to each of them in their context of their gospel than, than kind of run them all together. You want to take a
Well, thank you very much for uh, an immense amount of scholarship delivered in a very accessible way. I think you'll all agree with me that that was very, very helpful to all of us, especially as we begin Lent. Um, so perhaps you'd like to join me in thanking Richard. <laughs>